I'm Mel Stewart, and this is the Swim Swam Podcast. Joining me today is perhaps the greatest Olympian of all time, four-time Olympic champion, probably should have been five-time Olympic champion. That fifth medal got away, but we'll give him a fifth medal for being the greatest Olympic mentor in the history of the Olympic Games, my friend, John Neighbor. Mel Stewart, the, the king of hyperbole. Love you. I love you. We, I, we, I have to add. I have to. I have to do a full disclosure in this moment. We are buddies. 1976 was my moment as a child where the dream uh, was born, and it was born watching this gentleman right here, John Neighbor, and the the following year we met, and he gave a clinic, and I and I met John. I got to meet my hero, and I think I probably saw you every other year. And then almost every year when I became an adult in my Olympic time, and you have always been consistent. You've always been a great mentor. You're just, I mean, it's, uh, you're, the, the stuff you do behind the scenes is a legend. Well, thank you, Mel. I, I, I appreciate that. I will also say that when I transitioned from athlete to broadcaster, you became one of our favorite interviewers, interviewees. You were always good with a turn of phrase and a great attitude on camera. And, you still have it. We, 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 we tried. And, uh, and I will say this. So I, I've, I've had a few spins in the chair. And when I, my, the first time I ever did in broadcasting was ABC, which is like being thrown into the fire. And literally, if I, this is how I would describe the experience. It was, I think we were in Santa Clara. I did it. And I think that it, you, you told me exactly what to do, when to do it, spoon fed me, and uh, everyone was like, everyone was su so surprised I did so well. <laughs> and, and I was like, I didn't do anything. John told me everything to do. I, I, I wish it was true. No, it's all true. That's, that's exactly true. You absolutely did that. Did you do that for Rowdy too? Did, you, did he get the same tutorial, the same support behind the scenes? I think if you ask him, he might say yes. He I might say he yes. I hope he does. I've asked, I have asked, I have asked our friend Rowdy and he said the same thing to me. The, uh, the, there's, so many, there's so many things to, to talk about. There's so much to cover and I'm hoping that you come back on because you're, you're, one, you're in addition to winning all of these Olympic medals, you also probably should have the gold medal for being one of the greatest storytellers. To crystallize that, if you had a long haul drive, long haul flight, and you had to choose someone to sit next to, you would want it to be John Neighbor. Oh my. So let's get into 76. All right. 76, you're a child. Uh, are you shaving every day? I know you got that mustache, but were you shaving every day at that point? Did you, have, did, you have, did you have stubble on your chin? I was 20 years of age, and my mustache was a lot thinner, but my sideburns were down to here. And if I let myself grow a beard, there would be splotches of holes. That's right. So so I was shaving, but I, I probably wasn't as hairy as I am now. Well, I'm less hairy now up here. But I'm a lot hairier down here. I will say this. This hairstyle that you have and the mustache, you've been rocking this in 76. And you've hung on to it for so long, you, you really haven't changed. What a little more silvery. Mel, Mel, you've given it a phrase. What, what is my mustache? It's... I forgot what you're from. Oh, it was, I'm not... It was 70s porno chic. 
Seventies porno chic. I did say seventies porno chic. I don't say that, but that's what you said. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't dare do it uh, in media. But I'm glad you did. So it, but I. I, but I know our listeners want to experience some of the things I've experienced, and uh, so we're going to begin at the beginning. I want to go back to '76. I want to get into childhood too much. Let's, let's focus on '76 for now. But uh, I'm hoping people can get the the, the John Neighbor feel. And I think the way to start this thing is to say, okay, four gold medals, four world records, but maybe that fifth medal got away from you. And you have a great narrative because you were on the, one of the greatest, I think it might be the great, it is the greatest men's team in history. What happened to the fifth gold? Okay, yeah, just to be clear, words matter. You said I let the fifth medal get away from me. That's not true. I let the fifth gold medal get away, but I okay. did get a fifth medal. Okay, sorry, but silver medal, you let the fifth gold get away. And but, I, I was trying to tee it up. I wanted to tee it up. I want to hear the John Neighbor But let's be fair. My silver medal in Montreal was perhaps my greatest swim in Montreal. Okay. And to be clear, a little, little, little background, um, the second day of Olympic swimming featured the gold medal final in the 100-meter backstroke, and 45 minutes later, the gold medal final in the 200-meter freestyle. So 45 minutes after winning my 100 backstroke, I was on the blocks again. I was the eighth qualifier, so I was outside lane. And I led the 200-meter freestyle for 199 meters. It was a darn good swim. My mother, was, my mother was so upset when you didn't win. She said, John didn't win. Because she just watched you go 55, 49, 100 back. Is that right? Seven, right. seven years was the world record. She, and we, by, this, by this point, we were so into the John Neighbor star camp. When you didn't win, I, she jumped up off the couch and she was just like, he let it get away. Let's be fair. I lost to another American, Bruce Furness. And Bruce had to break the world record in order to win. And he had the most beautiful stroke. And I was very proud for him and happy for him. Um, and I don't think my life would be that different if I'd won five gold versus four gold and a silver. And in fact, four gold and a silver is a record I share with Janet Evans. I share it with Greg Luganis. Four gold and a silver is not a bad result, and I'm very happy uh, with that result. And uh, frankly, it did put me in a position to remain engaged with the Olympic community for decades. My Olympics were 44 years ago, and I'm still involved on a daily basis with the Olympic movement, and I love it. I want to get into that a little bit. I do want to get into that a little bit, because it, it, is, it is wonderful what you've done, and, it, and it's impressive. But what happened on this t those last 10 meters? You know, I, I've replayed the race many times in my mind, and I honestly can't think of anything I could have done that would have allowed me to win. Um, so uh, Keith Jackson made the call as they come to the wall. It's neighbor. It's neighbor. It's neighbor. It's furnace with a new world record. I was close. Nothing wrong with that. I, I, I am I am ashamed to say this. It was, it was, was Bruce a Trojan? Yes. Bruce yeah, is a Trojan, he, right. Oh, He's I, was, a teammate. I was the first guy under the, under the lanes to go over and, and uh, congratulate him. I couldn't yeah. be happier. And um, I think I've told you this. Have I got time to tell a story? Yeah, just oh. for our audience, just so you know, uh, John was at Swam at USC. You guys were four. You won NC2A champions four times. Ten NC2A individual national titles. Just, just, to, just so people have some background. Go ahead. We, we were part of a very dominant team, and I think we might have won the NC2A championships by the largest point margin in history. 
my, my senior year. But I'm back to the Bruce Furness. At the end of that second night, Bruce and I had been opponents. We called each other competitors. We were not, we were not predators. We were not competitors. We were competitors. And following that swim and following the award ceremony and following the mandatory uh, press conference and following the mandatory drug test, it was about 10 o'clock at night. And the two of us, having fought so hard in front of the eyes of the world, were scheduled to go out to dinner with our respective sets of parents. Moms and dads were waiting at the front door. And as we walked out of the, uh, the, the locker room after the drug test, the place was virtually empty. And we were walking alongside the warm down pool four lanes of 50 meter water underneath the bleachers, lights out, very quiet. Bruce said, you know, in a couple of days, we have to swim the four by 200 free relay. And we haven't loosened up after our race. We were pulled out of the water and paraded around. So we, we ought to swim it off. We ought to loosen up. I said, okay, fine. So we took off our sweats. We jumped into the water and we loosely swam, synchronized swimming, breathing towards each other, smiling, a flip turn, we swam 150 meters, 175 meters, and we stopped in the middle of the pool. And I'm draped over the lame rope, and I'm, my heart rate's slow, and my breathing's calm. And Bruce was looking at me with a great warm smile. And then he looks at the remaining 25 meters of the pool, and he says, you want to race? Now, hours ago, we had just done this race in front of the eyes of the world. But today, he wants to do it again. And I said, oh, come on, Bruce. We're and I took off. And I started swimming as fast as I could. I was reaching for the wall when his hand grabbed my suit, pulled me back, and we wrestled in the water like a couple of wet sea otters and got out of the pool laughing and smiling. We went to meet our parents, arm in arm, arms around shoulders, laughing, smiling. They were afraid that this friendship might have been spoiled by that race. And in fact, it was, it was bonded permanently. There's something about going to war against each other and then going to war with each other that brings us uh, a lifelong commitment to be uh, to be friends and uh, it, that that relationship lasts to this day and uh i don't he had he's recently had a health challenge and um and he's he's, he's, he's okay fine. he's, he's doing okay fine. he's okay he's back he's good and, and he's a dear dear friend he ought to be on a podcast he's a good storyteller too uh, I, I would like to have um, Bruce and Steve together because I like the way they 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 argue <laughs> and they tell their own stories. Yeah. So uh, that, that's perfect. That's exactly what we're looking for. We're looking for narrative, uh, the John Neighbor cinematic narrative. Because if I was watching the '76 movie, this would definitely be a moment that uh, that helps us understand you and understand the '76 team. The '76 team is a story. It's a, it's, it, it's that team that we're always, we, we always, you know, it's, you do a review and you go back over time and you go back, you yeah, know, it's the men's 76 team. Is there a moment in 76 that, that crystallized that experience for you when you kind of, when you kind of aware, you're like, wow, we're, we're achieving something that's special here. This is going to be remembered for ages. The tipping point occurred in Long Beach, California, site of the 76 Olympic trials. Our first night together as a team, we were staying in a hotel and they had a, ball, uh, um, a small conference room that they converted into an after hours dining area so that the swimmers after the meet could come in and have a little buffet dinner. And we're all sitting down and we realized at the time because Indiana University and USC were real uh, on loggerheads at the NC2A. So you're either a Trojan or a Hoosier and there was a lot of 
you know, resentment. Uh, I realized that if I'm going to win the backstroke, I'm going to have to beat Peter Rocca from Cal. And if, if I'm going to win the freestyle, I got to beat Bruce Furness from USC. And there was, there was tension in the room because American men were, were at the top of the rankings globally. Uh, so somebody would say, pass the salt, and there'd be, oh, here you go. You know, there's a little, little tension. Coach Doc Councilman walks into the room, and he says, gentlemen, congratulations. You just made the 1976 Olympic team where you will represent your country in Montreal. I'm sure each and every one of you have a goal for your performance at that swimming. Allow me to share my goal for this team with you. He says, I think in 13 swimming events, I think American men can win them all. I think American men can win more medals in swimming than the rest of the world combined. And I think American men can win more medals in these Olympics than the rest of the U.S. Olympic team, all other sports put together. Wow. Those are pretty, pretty heady goals that none of us had thought about. And it sort of made the, the backstrokers kind of root for the breaststrokers. And it made the butterflyers cheer for the freestylers. It made the sprinters root for the distance men. And all of a sudden, if I can't win, I want you to win. And if you win, I still want to come in second because we want, as a team want to elevate performance. And the end results in Montreal, in 13 races, American men were unable to win one gold, one silver, and six bronze. We swept every other potential medal. And that's what made, makes people call the Montreal Olympic men's team the greatest team ever because of their percentage of great success. And in fact, at the next Olympics, FINA voted to reduce the number of entries per country from three to two because they were sick and tired of seeing three flags from the same country up on the award stands. And in fairness, there were three East German flags in the women's events in Montreal, and they were sick of that too. So that was the change in the rules. And sadly, now what that means is that the bronze medalist at the Olympics is not necessarily the third best athlete in the, in the world at the time. It might be, but it's not necessarily so. So uh, we feel very proud of the accomplishment, but sad of the outcome that resulted from, uh, from that decision. I got third at trials in 1996. So thanks a lot, John. I would have been an Olympian in 96, but no thanks to you and your, and your heroes in 76. It's, Sorry. It's, it's, a, it's a, just so our, our listeners know, some, some of our listeners are young. A lot of our listeners are, are coaches and swim parents. And we get some young kids. This is the audience skews older on the podcast, but it's a, uh, so some might not know. Doc Councilman was the, considered the greatest coach of all time, uh, coming off of 72 with Spitz, seven Olympic, seven, seven goals, seven races. And uh, he was a, a, he was a titan in, in the industry. Well, uh, not only that, his teams won six collegiate titles in a row. Doc Councilman is not a nickname. He was an actual PhD doctor in physiology. He wrote the book, The Physiology of Swimming. So he is a credentialed statistician. He took underwater video or film of swimmers long before it was popular. And the Outstanding Coach of the Year Award is the Doc Councilman Coach of the Year Award. They, he deserves a great recommendation. And he swam the English Channel. He was the oldest man to ever swim the English Channel at the time he did it. You're right. Was he 59? I think he might have been 61 or two as well. He may have swum it again afterwards, but yes, he was late 50s, all greased up and no wetsuits, swam the English Channel. I had no idea what swimming the English Channel was until I saw this this port this pot-bellied old dude lathered up in 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 in. He looked like he he had beef tallow all over him. 
And that was Doc Councilman. That was Doc Councilman. So it's very, very impressive gentleman. That's that. Okay. That's a great moment, but there's, there's got to be, there's got to be other moments. I was teasing you about the fifth medal, of course, but I've heard that story before and I wanted you to share it. Uh, And you can go in any direction you want, but uh, as as a window into this next, you can push off or you can, you can lean into this. Uh, did you see the last gold, the documentary? Of course, of course, yes. of course. Did, did uh, I? I would spend some time with a lot of seventy sixers, all women, and uh, when I brought this question up, they all got choked up. What, I I cried when I watched it. What was? Where, where did it hit you? Well, I was interviewed quite often in the film, uh, and of course, I was familiar with what was going on in Montreal. Most great athletes have a tendency to choose to ignore temporary negative evidence. In other words, you can sort of just put that out of your mind, you compartmentalize and only focus on what's important. There was a lot of rumors that the East Germans were cheating, but as an athlete, there was nothing I could do about it, so I put my blinders on and tended to ignore it. Shirley Babishoff was not given that luxury, and as a result, you know, she had to, to comment and it was, it was a difficult time for her. And she was proven to be correct. She was proven to be right that these German women definitely had been cheating. Um, and so at the time, all of the races that I had predicted Shirley to win, she was defeated by East German women. And when the last event came up, the last race of the meet and the last chance for an American female gold medal in swimming in Montreal, uh, I was very friendly with many of the athletes, and in fact, one of them, Wendy Bolio, was married, and her husband, Bernie, was sitting with me in the stands watching this race. And when Jill Sterkel took the lead off the turn in the third leg, you could just sense that there was a historic moment taking place. And uh, when Shirley took them all the way to the finish line, it was such a um, it was so, so rewarding in many different ways, not just patriotic, but also, you know, the underdog gets to win and the, and the good person gets to win. Um, I was overcome with emotion, no question. So when I watch the movie, even to this day, I feel like I want to cheer for him during, during the movie. Uh, it's a rare feeling. I'm happy to say that immediately after the race, because of my Olympic credential, I was able to escort Bernie Bolio down the bleachers through the mixed zone so that he was able there to greet his wife shortly after the race. And it was one of the most touching reunions I think I could imagine and a great moment. So let me close with this thought. Since that moment, it has been my desire to see the 4x100 Women's Freestyle Relay from Montreal be inducted into the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Hall of Fame. And I think we can do this. Um, we've lost team. I've been on the nominating committee and this team has been nominated in the past and we tend to lose because a lot of female gymnasts who are in their 11s and 12s tend to vote a lot. But I think that if, if the swimming community were to get involved to support the fact this is a, this is our miracle on ice for the women to defeat the East German women in that environment at that time, it is a truly remarkable performance. And I think we ought to honor them. Even though one of the four, Kim Payton, is no longer with us, I think that it's important that we find a way to honor the, that team. It's a, um, it's a David and Goliath story. It is the story. I'm, I, I applaud you as a swimming for, you know, for investing in this documentary film. Uh, Mike Unger was really instrumental um, behind making it happen. But it was, uh, you know, they, they, could have, they, could have, they could have chosen a lot of different moments to memorialize 
And this was not inexpensive. And I, I thought the results were fantastic. And of course, I love that you were in it. It was a well done film. I do think there's one forgotten name in the whole story. And that's Jennifer Hooker Brynagar. Because she helped qualify that relay earlier in the meet. And if, if today's rules were in effect, then she would be the owner of a gold medal. And uh, in fact, if you go to the Olympic website, the International Olympic Committee website, she's listed as an Olympic champion. I like that. I like that a lot. It's a, uh, I appreciate your, your, your experience. And, and, it's, and it's not a surprise to know that once you're, when you're in the thick of it and your blinders are on, you're focused on what you have to do. And what you had to do was, uh, so that was, that was a big schedule. The, uh, the women's side was, um, how many medals would Shirley have won? How many golds would she have won? Well, she could have won. She could have won six. She dropped the 400 IM to focus on her freestyles because she knew the East German women were so powerful. Had she competed against a fair group, one could argue she would have won five gold medals and a silver. She was not America's fastest 100-meter freestyler, but perhaps the races would have been different had she been able to, to fight for the gold. I don't know. Well, I appreciate that they're having their moment now. I, um, and, and looking at your story, what's interesting to me is that you, you, you were such a kid, and, I, and I, I didn't even think about it until I was, I was, you know, I was doing my, my John Neighbor deep dive, and I'm like, what a baby face. I, wa I wasn't a kid. I was 20 years old, but I sure acted immaturely. No, no. In the context, I was giddy. I was laughing. I was smiling. I was waving. Like, I was. Uh, I appreciate that, but through the lens of today, um, frankly, as a twenty-year-old, you probably wouldn't have the same experience. You would probably have to wait to peak until you're twenty-four. So, if you were competing today, your best Olympics, I think, if you were competing in this in this day and age, would be through you know through their experience. You, I think athletes change between 20 and 24. I think as a man, you probably would have had your best Olympics at 24. Well, but back then you, back then you, you, everyone swam, most everyone retired after college. Sure. There was no money. We were the amateur era. We could not afford to uh, pay for room and board without a college scholarship. Um, there was no, there was no option. So yeah, one could argue I might've swum longer. My winning time in Montreal would have won gold all the way through 1988 in Seoul in the 200 backstroke. But I, I was perfectly happy because I expected I'd have to move on for me to retire uh, in, in April of 77, because I had one more year of eligibility at USC after the Olympics. I was delighted. I, uh, I, I don't feel like I lost anything and it, it segued nicely into a broadcasting career. Nobody gets upset after winning five gold medals. I, I've learned that in, in meeting a lot of our peers. When, when, you, when, you, when, you're, when you're after it, when you cross three medals, it's like it doesn't matter after that. It's like, wow, I'm done. But it's a, uh, this is when, when, I, when I think of you, I think that my point is this. A lot, of, a lot of athletes have long, long careers now, and then they start their professional post-swimming career. And you started it at a young age. And you hit the ground running. And uh, – but before before I get into that, and I want to talk to you about it. Before we get into that, I will say this: the I was on the '88 Olympic team. I was a, I watched the 200 backstroke, and I remember the the finish of the 1988 Olympics, and thinking to myself, John would have won that race. John would have won that race 12 years later, and uh, and and just so that so people listening in understand this, you were the first man under two minutes in the 200 meter backstroke, which you own that, and you were the first man under 50 seconds in the 100 yard backstroke. 
<laughs> which is which is pretty cool. Which is pretty cool because now uh, our women women are doing that now. I like that. I would like to make a point. In that era, backstrokers actually had to touch the wall with their hands on the turn. So <laughs> you know, I swam about two yards further than they're swimming today. That's right. If you if you had been able to do a flip turn, it'd have been like forty six or forty seven for sure. I'm six and a half feet tall. I'd turn at the flags. <laughs> You're right. You would turn at the flags. Another John Neighbor story, just to, for for folks listening, and this this is a this is a golden nugget, and it's one I have to I just have to share. I always do this with uh, with Olympic peers. I always ask them to take their shoes off and show me their ankle flexibility, and I do it with everybody. And it looks like John's going to do it right now. But I said so as he's doing it, I want to say this: Look at it. Looks like he's John. If you're listening and you're not seeing the video, it look. John is showing us now on video. It looks like his ankle's broken. It's like the, the end, the arch is like, it's, where it's like broken there. So the point is this, uh, I ask everybody because I know that elites have this genetic advantage, but I always want to know who has the best. And I have never seen an ankle quite like yours. I would say of everyone that I've witnessed, that is the most, that is, that is the, that is the biggest arch for it, for, for an ankle flexibility that I've ever seen ever. Well, I'm flattered. I will note that uh, uh, um, Ian Thorpe was said to have, what, 17 size shoes. I'm 11 and a half. My feet are not quite so long, so I have to make up for it with flexibility. I'll take, I'll, I'll take 11 and a half with your ankle flexibility over 17. My guess, he, he has a little bit of ankle flexibility too. But it's a, but I, I'm not sure if I told you that, but I, it, but I do ask everybody, hey, let me see your ankles to this day. A good swimmer can recognize what stroke you swim by how your feet are positioned when you stand against a wall. Backstroker's toes are pointed in a little bit. Breaststroker's toes are pointed out quite a bit. Anyway, so when somebody says, meet my daughter, the swimmer, I say, oh, you're a breaststroker. And they go, how did you know? It's all in the feet. The, uh, you were young, and you segued into broadcasting. And you, you seg it appeared to me as a child that you, that you did it kind of quickly. And it was, uh, I know, I know that at what point did you, cause you, your, your, your broadcasting career is dizzying because most people think about broadcasting careers through the lens of, of what they've seen recently with Summer Sanders or Rowdy Gaines or, you know, Adara Torres, you're looking at, they're looking at the person calling the color, not calling the, the what you were for, I guess it took about 10 years or less, but you were a host relatively quickly and hosting and, and covering an endless list of sports. Was that always your plan? No. I actually, I did not go to school in broadcasting. I did go to school in communications and psychology. I thought I was going to work in the advertising business doing what Darren Stevens uh, did on the TV show Bewitched. That was the job I thought I was going towards. Uh, but shortly after my retirement, a swim meet occurred in Mission Viejo, and Mark Spitz, who was the ABC color commentator, was not available. And they called me on short notice to say, would you be our analyst? And they threw me in the deep end. I think the communications background helped. Uh, I think that I was, I was uh, ignorant of the pitfalls. And so I was fearless going forward. Uh, I don't think I did a very good job. But because the following Olympics, the games that followed mine, went to NBC. And Mark Spitz was on a contract to ABC, as was Donna Deverona. They had no choice, and so they came to be the to be the color commentator. And as we all know, the 1980 Olympics ended up being boycotted, so we didn't go and do television. 
but I ended up doing all the pre-meets, the championships, the trials, the Pan Ams or whatever. And then ABC came calling again and I started doing a bunch of stuff for wide world of sports. And you move from the expert analyst role who explains why people are winning to the play-by-play role who explains what's actually happening on screen. And if you do play-by-play in one sport, it's relatively easier to do play-by-play in other sports. I didn't need to be an expert in gymnastics. I just needed to sit next to one. And so if I could pronounce the names and could keep the scores, then Bart Connor and Nadia Komen each could do the, the or Kathy Johnson-Clark could do the, the, the expert commentary. And as a result, I had the privilege of talking to, interviewing athletes from 30 different Olympic sports, which was a perfect segue into my role of, of, of gathering and telling Olympic stories that, uh, that touch the, the human conscience uh, going forward. Well, what's, what's interesting about your story is that, you know, there was a boycott in 1980. And, and most, most people who enter this space, they usually have the Olympics, uh, they retire, and then it's the next Olympics where they sort of make their name in television. And uh, you, you were able to persevere through that. And, and you built a career. But it's a... It, but no one in swimming that I can, you know, that, that's not true. Summer Sanders is the one person who did uh, transcend swimming. Uh, I don't think anyone else has. No one has, got, has won Olympic gold medals and then gone into television and, and moved beyond the analyst chair, except for you and for Summer. And I wonder why that is. Well, I think you're overlooking names like Buster Crab or Johnny Weissmiller. That's true. They, but these were, they, these were 40 screen stars. These were, this was the, the silver age of Hollywood, the golden age, the silver age or the golden age. Well, I think Caitlin Sandino is making inroads as a broadcaster, as a speaker and a public face. Janet Evans has certainly got the reputation that's, that's excelled. But most, most Olympians, well, let me be clear. I am aware that the skill of swimming quickly while on your back has limited value in society at large. And as a result, when I'm no longer able to swim quickly on my back, I better find something I can do that somebody else can attribute value to it. And for me, it was communications. If I could tell a story well and quickly and in time for the commercial out, I would be rewarded for it. And uh, I'm just delighted that it's worked out that way. Um, and, and I've done the Rose Parade, you know, for ABC now some 30 years. It's I think they choose me because they don't have to fly me out from New York. I just walk down the street in Pasadena and do the Rose Parade. And Sadly, that parade will not job. be taking place. You do a great job. That's not fair. You do it. You do a great job. It, it feels sort of like slipping on my Christmas sweater. Uh, you know, it, it's a it's a warm, comfortable thing. We're down to seven minutes. Okay. Um, I, did, I did I did want to talk to you about this. I want to keep it sort of chlorinated uh, in our in this in this first get together with John Neighbor, my my favorite. First of many. First, first of many, many. first of many, the, um, we have been the most, in the United States, we are the most dominant, uh, at the elite stage in backstroke. It's a, you know, we are, it's, it's starts with you, goes to, uh, Rick Carey, uh, uh, Rouse, uh, David Burkoff, uh, Aaron Pearsall, Lenny Kraselberg. And it, it's just, it, there is a, there is a straight line. Brad Bridgewater. Yeah, no, we've, we've definitely done very, very well in the backstroke. And before me, I think there was Charlie Hickox back in 1964. So, yeah, there. Why? Yes. Do, I mean, I, I'm asking you a hard question, but it's, it's like, do you have, has you ever, have you considered it and wondered why? Um, I have considered it. 
I, I, can, I can guess. I don't know the answer. Um, either we have really good coaches who understand the backstroke very, very well, or we have a personality in our country that loves FaceTime. Let the world see us, right? Um, or, or uh, I don't know. Um, there doesn't have to be a reason, I suppose. Um, or, or when someone sets the bar very high, I think that something happens culturally and I think people realize, okay, that's possible and this is where I'm going. And I think that when you start it early enough on, it, it, does, it does affect the generations to come. Perhaps, and, but I don't think Griebers or, or Murphy have any idea of what I looked like when I was swimming. They're patterning themselves after Lenny Kraselberg. That's correct, but it goes one to the next. It goes the one to the next. continues. Oh, but it, it is, it is, we are so dominant in that event. Is it something that you take pride in? Is it something where you're like, it's the backstroke club? Do you think to yourself, do you, have, do you walk around your house going, yeah, I started the backstroke club, ladies and gentlemen? No. But if I had to choose which of the three days of the NC2As to go watch or which of the eight days of the Olympic trials to go watch, I'll, I'll buy a ticket when there's a backstroke event taking place. Men or women, I like to watch them all the time. It's um, what, 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 so in terms of backstroke and in terms of, you know, when I'm so I'm nine years old, 1977, I get to the John neighbor clinic and this is what I learned. Backstroke is, is the same as freestyle. It's really about rotation. And I was a little, little kid and you shared that. And, uh, I went on to be, become, I was a prep school national champion. I was third in NC2A's in backstroke. I wasn't a backstroker, but my backstroke trajectory began with that one clinic from you. How about that? How about that? Well, I'm, I'm glad to, to play some small role in your, in your backstroke experience. I'm so sorry that I disappointed you and didn't become a Ryan Murphy. I failed you, John. Not at all. Not at no, all. But, but he, he has impressed me both with his elegance in the water and his graciousness out of the water. And I like that. If I, if I, and let's not forget Tyler Clary. I think he's an Olympic champion. Ryan Lochte. I mean, we, we do have an awful lot of Olympic champions. But I got to tell you, Ryan, Lenny, to me, is the epitome of elegance in both in and out of the water. And Ryan is stepping right into those shoes. So uh, we're, down, we're, we're down to about three and a half minutes. And I just want to say that, John, is, as the leader of the Backstroke Gold Club, you should create a Navy Blazer. And, and, and present it to all of the Backstroke champions so that you can have your own little pre-cocktail party at, at, at big events. And, and so you can look at people like Phelps and go, no, sorry, I, we appreciate you, but you're not invited. You're very gracious. <laughs> very good. So, I, I don't want to dump on you in the last three minutes, but we are in a unique moment, and the Olympics are next year. And I know uh, you, you have been past president to the U.S. Olympic uh, Alumni Association. And uh, you're very instrumental behind the scenes. I'm aware of things going on behind the scenes, but I can't tell you, I, I, I can't tell you people exactly what I know, but I can tell you that I'm 99% sure we're going to have an Olympics next summer. Have you been privy to these conversations? I have not been privy to anything that you have not been privy to, but I do believe an Olympic Games will take place in Tokyo next year with or without a vaccine, with or without certain athletes. And individual athletes should be given the right to decide not to go. That's their choice but they should be given the opportunity to go if that's their choice. So I, I do expect that Olympic Games will take place. Um, and I hope they do, because I hope that the Olympic movement does not grind to a halt without an Olympic Games taking place. Um, 
will never be safe. And there's, a, there's an element of risk in any and everything we do. And we have to be wise shepherds of that decision. Is this something we want to do or not? And I don't want somebody else telling me how much risk I can handle. I kind of like to leave that decision to the athletes whenever possible. And I will say most Olympic contenders consider themselves bulletproof. And that as a result, I think that the athletes want to compete. And there may be a consequence to it. Somebody may get sick and their grandparents may die. And that would be a horrible thing. But that's a decision for those people to make, not for me to make. And closing it down, we're going to bring John back. But I'm so glad that he shared. We're talking a little cryptically, but I'm glad that he shared what, I'm, what I think that I am learning through our, our friends and peers and insiders. And uh, I am very, very confident about Olympic Games next year. Will you come back? Of course. I'll come. No. Will I come back to your interviewing on a podcast? Yes. Will I come back as a backstroker competing for a spot in the Olympics? No. Ladies and gentlemen, John Neighbor. I love John Neighbor. Good talking to you. Thank you, Mel. Always fun with you. You've been listening to the Swim Swam podcast. Stay tuned for new episodes every week. You can take Swim Swim podcasts on the go by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. Look for links in the description below and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more videos as well.